need someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman. And I'm here today with a very special guest, somebody who I've known almost as long as I've been on my own shochu journey. And that's Jesse Fallowitz from Mizu Shochu, joining me from New York City. Jesse, how are you? Thanks for coming on the show. Doing great. Thanks so much for having me here. I appreciate it. And uh, such a big fan of what you guys are doing. And uh, it's an honor as, you know, being here with you guys. Well, it's, uh, it's always great to talk to you. You and I have been friends for a long time. And seeing your journey with, uh, with your shochu brand has been inspirational, I think, for, for Christopher and I both. So uh, definitely kudos to you and all that you've accomplished. And we'll get into that a little bit. But why don't we start with the beginning? Where did you discover shochu? I know I was in Izakaya 10 in Manhattan in 2007, but where were you? I'd say it was probably back in 2001 or 2002, one of my first trips to Japan, visiting a close friend of mine there and just spending some time with him and a few other friends, visiting Izakayas. For sure, it was something that, you know, he was drinking at the time. Uh, when I say he, I'm going to get more into who he is later. But uh, my business partner, Jeremy Kono, uh, he's Japanese and good friend from college. So he was living over in Japan and shortly after graduating from college, we were, you know, taking lots of trips out there. And that was really the, probably the first time I had heard of shochu or tasted shochu. And do you remember what style of shochu you first encountered? I mean, I remember my first brand, but even Christopher doesn't remember his. So that's probably going too far back in the archives. Well, it's funny because I don't remember exactly what we were drinking at the time, but I will definitely say that the uh, Ichiko Silhouette bottle was something that was I, I, I saw it everywhere and it was very iconic. So that that was one of the ones I'm sure, you know, definitely one of the first ones I tried. But I don't think that was the first. It would have been probably something a little bit more obscure. And no, I definitely don't remember exactly what brand sure, it was sure. going back a long time. Yeah, well, that Ichiko Silhouette was my first church. So okay. definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of people's gateway, I think. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Now, you were working in Asia, uh, and what led you to want to create an alcohol brand? What, how did that transition happen? I was working in marketing and consulting, uh, working for a firm, global advertising agency. They had moved me over to Asia, uh, specifically Taipei, to do kind of regional work. And two of the clients that I had worked on over those during the time that I was with that company, uh, one was Absolute Vodka and one was uh, Grey Goose Vodka. It gave me a lot of exposure to the liquor industry, but uh, having seen that from kind of brand building and marketing point of view, it kind of got me very, very curious about the spirits industry. So there was definitely an interest from that experience that I'd had being more on the advertising and marketing side for sure. There was a lot more that went into it as well. I think just the travels and the, the time that I had spent in Asia, but specifically going and spending quite a lot of time in Japan and kind of seeing little pieces of what the shochu industry was about. It really kind of got me um, very interested in, in that whole kind of business, if you want to call it that. I would say there were probably a, a handful of things that really stood out in terms of where things got really interesting or where the idea got serious. And it's funny, but Jeremy Kono and I were on a beach 
down in Malaysia at the time I was living in Kuala Lumpur. And we were over um, just kind of vacationing for a weekend in the Perenthian Islands, and there's really nothing around there. So we had a lot of time to chat and talk about, you know, our friendship and our future and things like that. One of the things that kind of came up in that conversation was like, yeah, like we want to start a business together and um, do something a little bit different. I was kind of getting a little bit burnt out from what I was doing. He felt like he needed a, a little bit of a creative kind of uh opportunity as well to do something a little bit different from the type of stuff that he was doing. He works in finance and still does, but, you know, he wanted something that was a little bit more exciting and allowed him to kind of express his creativity as well. We were just throwing around ideas and just kind of playing around with it. We weren't even taking it too seriously in the moment, but it was like, well, if we were to start a business together, what would it be? And I said very quickly, like, I'd love to do something that's, um, you know, relating to to alcohol, but specifically Japanese alcohol. And uh, he just right away threw out, let's do shochu. And the conversation doing like sake or something like that, and that wasn't even really more than maybe two seconds of airspace before we just, the word shochu came out. And we both just got instantly excited about it. It just felt like a great idea right from the beginning. And it was kind of nuts because we talked about it a lot more over the next few days. And it seemed like it was such a done deal. So much so that I had been with this uh, advertising agency for about 10 years at that point in time. I literally handed in a resignation letter about a week and a half later. I took one and a half weeks to think about it and say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is, this is the next step in my career. This is what I want to do. Took a few months after that just to kind of pack up and close out with my old company and uh, move to Japan. And then kind of that's, that's where it all got started, really. That's an incredible amount of certainty. Would you attribute that to, to youth or... Uh... Youth? <laughs> <laughs> I think youth and just being at a, in a moment in my life where I felt like I was ready for the next big adventure to kind of do something that hadn't been done before and to kind of have the courage, I guess, to just jump in to the deep end, to go down the rabbit hole. It just felt right. You know, it was just one of those things where... I felt as though, and and it's funny, and we could kind of touch on it later, but I thought I was really prepared to do something like this. <laughs> and little did I, little did I know, there were so many, there were so many components of creating a spirits brand that certain things came very, very natural and were very, you know, brand building and stuff like that. But the the building of the company and uh, and and the sales component were things that that were definitely brand new. And there was no mentor, there was no guidance from anybody. Everything was just kind of trial and error and just kind of figuring it out piece by piece as we built the company and built the brand. And so when you, you, you made that very quick decision, you moved to Japan and then you've got to find your supplier. You've got to come up with your brand concept, all that sort of thing. And so what was that process like for you? So that was, that was really, I think, looking back at it, like that, that three year period, two and a half year period of my life is just so incredible and really just some of the most amazing memories. I wish I kind of took notes a little bit better in terms of like keeping a journal because it, even now it's, it's almost like 12, 13 years ago. I really, really wish I had kept a journal on a lot of these things, the people you meet, the, the places you go, the things you eat, the things you drink, all of that. But what it really came down to was um, Jeremy and I were living in Tokyo. I use the analogy of like, it's as if, you were, let's say, from India or China, and you moved to America because your dream is to create a bourbon brand, but you're living in LA. 
<laughs> it's just <laughs> Tokyo is not where you go to start a shochu brand. You obviously need to get down to Kyushu, spend some time there, and uh, really get deep into the weeds there. So during the time in Tokyo, we were definitely um, looking at different distilleries, visiting shochu bars. We were tasting, I mean, just there would be nights where we would spend full night just exploring emo shochu, a full night just exploring mugi shochu. And I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Gen Shochu Bar. That was a place where we did just so much of the research, famous for having over 5,000 different brands of shochu in this one tiny little bar about the size of the bedroom I'm in right now, actually. And we would just focus and we had a notebook and we would actually go in and we would taste brand after brand after brand, tasting notes, everything, kind of getting a feel for what was unique about this style of shochu, what was unique about that style of shochu. And there were certain things also, like there was, there was the overall like taste profiles, but then there's also like, well, how do we feel now? You know what I mean? There was a, when we talked about, like, for example, the emo shochu nights, there were definitely nights where after about, you know, tasting, you know, six, seven, eight, nine different emo shochus, your mouth just tastes like a roasted sweet potato afterwards. It's pretty intense, you know, because again, um, we were looking not just at the lower ABV shochus, but at the higher ABV shochus as well, the Genshu style shochus. And some of those just had so much funk on them that like your mouth after your palate was completely blown out, no matter how much you tried to moderate and stuff like that. But that's really where it all started in Tokyo and just visiting Izakaya's shochu bars, getting a really good feel for what we thought, uh, what we loved personally. Because again, like I, I felt pretty strongly that if, if I'm going to be married to this thing for a very, very long time, I have to absolutely love it. Um, so there wasn't any this this anything like cutting corners or, you know, uh, shortcuts or like, let's just find something, put it in a cool bottle and call it a day that premise was just completely rejected and it was really going to be, we knew it was going to be like a long painstaking process to find the right distillery and to find something that we really wanted to back and get behind and we're passionate about. So uh, to get back to Kyushu and uh, how that all came about. So we, we, we had some leads and we were visiting some distilleries. We had explored just about every possible route to meet shochu makers. And back then the door was really closed. Um, it was it was a world that was not ready to open up. I think especially to a very tall Jeremy at the time, very very tall Japanese. He still is tall. That's not going to change anytime soon. Very very well dressed, uh, but kind of very modern Japanese. You could tell when he walks in the room. You know, the suit he's wearing and everything like that. He's not just your typical Japanese businessman. So right off the bat. It's him and it's me walking into a distillery and, and this is not who they're used to speaking to. So one of the things that we were looking at was um, some of the government agencies and stuff like that. Uh, things like Jetro and JSS and uh, METI and things like that. And we came to a lot of dead ends, to be honest with you. And it was a bit frustrating at the time because we thought that we had this great idea that would really help the shochu category. And we felt like nobody had really tried to do what we wanted to do uh, and to do it in a way that was authentic and true to the category. I was really actually, I I wouldn't go as far as say depressed, but I was really, really just taken back and um, saddened by the fact that there wasn't a lot of support for this by a lot of these uh, agencies that were basically commissioned to promote global sales of of these categories and stuff like that. That was a bit hard. Uh, And then in the end, what it came down to is we realized that the only way this is ever going to get done is we just have to spend an enormous amount of time 
in Kyushu and just go around. So Jeremy and I would start, you know, taking trips down there on the weekends. We would you know, fly down there. We would take off a week and go down there. At a certain point, I had felt like, you know what? I'm just going to stay down here until something happens, whether I trip over a rock and just fall into a distillery or that I, that I, that I love or whatever it might be. Um, but I'm not leaving Kyushu until something happens. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It was really got to a boiling point about, I would say this is about a year in at this point where I was just like, I'm not leaving Kyushu until something incredible happens. And I started off down in, uh, in Kagoshima and uh, moved up north eventually making my way to, um, to Fukuoka. And that's when something pretty amazing happened. Um, I found, you know, working in a design company for so many years and kind of having a background in product design and graphic design and things like that and marketing in general, creatively speaking, I had always really appreciated Japanese crafts and Japanese craftsmanship, pottery being one of those things. And I had looked up, um, Aritayaki or, well, I was looking at both Aritayaki and Imariyaki as being like, that is the birthplace of Japanese porcelain. So one day I basically hop on a train from Fukuoka, head out there. And that's when the big introduction to the woman who I call my, my Japanese fairy godmother, uh, Emiko. That's basically when I met her on the train ride over to uh, Arita. You've told me that story, but you haven't told our listeners. Why don't, why don't you give us the full version? <laughs> On my way to Imari and Arita to kind of check out the birthplace of Japanese porcelain, I'm sitting in Karatsu, uh, which is just a little bit outside of Fukuoka, about 45 minutes to an hour. Beautiful, adorable little town right on the ocean. Pretty much every time I'm down in Kyushu, I go back there to visit and to see her as well. Special place. Anyways, I was uh, waiting to transfer to the next train that would take me a little bit in a different direction down to uh, Imari and Arita. And while I'm in the train station, it was a little chance for me to grab some lunch. And I'm, I'm sitting down at a small little cafe and uh, a woman sits down next to me and uh, pretty much empty. The restaurant was empty at this point in time. Uh, important, important footnote here that this was very, very, like I would say about a month or two after the uh, Fukushima incident and all of that and, and the radiation scare um, and if you remember, a lot of foreigners uh, at the time tucked tail and got out of Japan. And uh, the fact that I was still that I was still there in Japan got her curious. And she's like, "Well, you know, what what are you doing here?" And I was like, "Well, I'm down here in Kyushu to uh, try to try to create a shochu brand." And she just looked at me like I was crazy, and she's like, "What? <laughs> like that's the you're like oh, a white guy in, in you know karatsu like." you know, you barely speak, you, you just speak a few words of Japanese, that's it. And you're by yourself traveling and uh, trying to make a show to you. It's just, this does not compute. I don't get it. That, that is a little crazy, you know. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. And, uh, and, but what was amazing is that she spoke phenomenal English. She had lived for a couple of years uh, in Houston. She was like, well, you know, I have a really good friend that lives down the road. Uh, sorry, that has a, a liquor store down the road. And, um, he knows a lot of the local distilleries and breweries and things like that. Why don't I take you to him and introduce you and he could give you some information. So I was like, okay, sure. So we finished eating lunch. I get in her car and <laughs> the whole, the whole, like catching the train to Arita and Imari at this point was like, forget this, this is going somewhere. I'm liking this. This is like destiny or whatever you want to call it. It really felt in the moment, like 
something special is happening here. And just two people, just totally two total strangers, just trusting each other and like going on a whim and saying, yeah, let's just, let's just do this. I'm going to help you. And so, uh, I get in her car, we drive, you know, a couple minutes away and we get to this liquor store and the owner there, she's translating the whole thing. And he's like, wow, this is really cool. And while they're chatting, you know, he's calling, like literally calling up a couple of the local Saga uh, distilleries, um, saying like, Oh, would you be interested in this and that? And what was crazy is while this is all happening, a sales rep, uh, from Munamasa Shuzo walks into the, the liquor store and is overhearing the whole story while he's like waiting, you know, as you and I know this, the sales pitch these days, you, you, you wait until the buyer's ready and all that. Uh, so he's just sitting there very patiently, politely waiting for like 15, 20 minutes, but hearing the whole story. And after hearing this whole story, he goes, you know, look, uh, the president of the distillery is, is out of town right now. He's, he's up, uh, he's up North in Tokyo, but next time, next time you're back in Kyushu and in the area, like we, you know, we'd love to, for you to come see the, the distillery. And he gave me a sample of, um, a rice shochu that they were working on at the time. And, uh, that night I took it back and that was it, you know, and with, with Emiko, we've stayed in touch, uh, and become really, really good friends. So that relationship has continued. Uh, but getting back to my hotel room that night, uh, I popped open that little, that little, it was one of those 200 ML plastic bottle sample and I tasted it and I was like, this is really good. And, you know, it was a lower ABV shochu. Uh, and at this point in time, uh, Jeremy and Jeremy and I had already made up my mind, um, that we had, we had wanted to go in the direction of more of a Genshu style shochu. There was something there. There was something really nice about it. And again, you, there was just something in that moment where you just felt like this is, this is, there's something here. And there were other distilleries. There were so many distilleries we visited and so many great meetings we had. Um, there was, there was a couple that, I mean, it was heartbreaking to have to make a decision because at that point in time, we were just like, no, it has to just be one brand and it should be, it should be one distillery. And we want to tell their story. We want this to be their brand as well. And, um, you know, and so we had to make a decision. It was an incredibly, incredibly emotional and difficult decision, uh, because I think we were in love with these other distilleries as well there was something in that moment that just felt like serendipitous and uh, I just felt that energy. And so next time we went back down to Kyushu, we visited them and we got to taste some of their Genshu, uh, their higher proof or undiluted shochu. And we were like, Oh my God, this is just incredible. The smoothness, everything about it. And that's really kind of where that introduction to Munamasa uh, started there. One question. Did you end up in Arita? at the end of that day or did you stay in Karatsu that night? No, I think, I think at that point it was already, it was already like so late in the day or I'd already missed like a couple, like the train, the train that was coming. Um, so I wound up just kind of, uh, detouring and just hanging out in Karatsu and just spending the day there and wandering around the town. Uh, it was about a month later that, uh, we came maybe even less, it might've been like three weeks later, we were back down in Kyushu and that's when we got to Arita, uh, for the first time and visited with Minamasa for the first time. Yeah, you you actually uh, introduced me to Karatsu. You were the first person to tell me about that town, and now I absolutely love it. It is a, it's an adorable little place. Yeah, uh, I I love spending time down there. It's a nice little coastal town with a little castle, and uh, just really really nice spot. So it's just beautiful and incredible. Love it. Yeah, Karatsu is fantastic in so many ways. But it, Saga generally is, and I think that's what's so interesting to me. There are 12 shochu makers in Saga, mm -hmm. and you settled on one of them. That's actually the fewest shochu makers of any prefecture in Kyushu. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yet, <laughs> so it was, it's not where I ever would have expected the first export brand to come from, uh, from, from the prefecture with the fewest distilleries, but you managed to make it happen. It all kind of makes sense because everything we were doing was just so off the beaten path. Like nothing, we, we didn't make anything easy for ourselves. Every, <laughs> and, and I think that's the same with Shochu in general. Every single step of this journey has been incredibly challenging. There's just no, there's no like uh, jumping forward 10 steps. It's like, it's, it's one step at a time, one step, one step, one step. And uh, yeah, sure. It, it kind of makes perfect sense being sort of feeling a little bit like an underdog a lot of the time and, um, and kind of feeling like the odds are, are stacked against us that, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense that we should, you know, be coming out of Saga. Yeah, you're right. It, it does. And, and then in, Arita is such a wonderful place as well, where Munemasa Distillery is, the, the home of Japanese porcelain, uh, as, as you mentioned. And as you've developed the brand, and let's maybe talk about yeah. that a little bit, because you, you've incorporated Arita into your branding mm -hmm. in, I think, really beautiful ways. And so let's talk a little bit about your branding concept and, and how that evolved to where it is today. Yeah, sure. So, so it, it all really started with the shochu itself was really what led the way. Uh, what I mean by that is there was combination of things like number one, we were just so, our conviction was so strong about this idea of, uh, going back to tradition, going back to old style shochu, the stories that we had heard of like, Oh, my grandma and grandpa, like the shochu that they drank was like 35 or 40% alcohol. Like that that concept and going back to that, our conviction on that was just so strong in the sense that, you know, we're looking at the global spirits industry and uh, it was hard for us to envision how a lower proof spirit would find its, would find favor from that of like a whiskey drinker or a scotch drinker, or a bourbon drinker, a tequila drinker, a vodka drinker, right? Because if you're talking about a vodka drinker or a gin drinker, you're, you're, you know, you're doing, you're talking about mixed drinks, highballs, essentially things of that nature, cocktails and whatnot. So there was definitely a notion that higher proof would be more apples to apples, uh, for what the, the global craft spirits audience is looking for. If you're, you know, whether, whether you're a bartender or a spirits aficionado, you know, or just somebody that just likes drinking hard alcohol, there was definitely something in it. Um, where we just felt like the traditional, the story of tradition, the story of going back to that higher proof AB, that higher proof shochu, um, was something that we were just really, really kind of gung ho on, just very focused on that. When you first introduced Mizu shochu to me, which was called Mizu no Mai at the time, you've, mm -hmm. you've shortened yeah. the name, I think, for, to uh, to help out American consumers, but uh, the. I was a little bit confused by the higher ABV and you told me this story, but I, there just wasn't much at all in higher ABV shochu in the States at the time. But now that I've traveled further in my shochu journey, realizing that you're absolutely correct, pre-war, everything was 35% and sometimes above. Or sometimes higher, it's, yeah. Yeah. And it's it, everything now, the 25% is completely driven by tax. I've said this over and over and over mm -hmm. again to anybody to listen, but as I've worked with distilleries and been thinking about uh what tastes best being able to try higher proof shochu it's virtually always best in that 30 to 40 percent range that's where for me for my for what i enjoy yeah. in spirits that's really where the shochu i think the 
the base ingredients shine through. You get you get the warmth, you get the the sweetness. It really it plays so well in that range. And so to be at thirty five with uh, Mizu is, is a, to me it's it, it was inspired that you that you chose that that proof. The mouthfeel as well, um, you know, is a, is an important thing. That viscosity. Again, I was a really, really big um, whiskey drinker and scotch drinker at the time. Uh, I was very, very into Japanese whiskeys uh, while I was living in 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 Taiwan, and uh, and you know, I, I think that just enjoying those types of spirits for me, the lower ABV shochu's just they lacked something. Um, definitely, you could get a lot of flavor. You could a lot of you could get a lot of depth in them. And there's a lot of complexity, especially if it's like a um, you know kind of a roasted barley shochu or a sweet potato shochu. Even at a lower ABV, you're going to get so much flavor and so much taste. But I do think that there is something about that ABV level, the ABV level, the mouthfeel, and just something that really comes out beautifully when you're talking about something that's in that closer to 35% versus 25%. So that, that was a really big part of, of what we were onto and the direction that we were heading. Uh, another thing was, and getting back to the brand creation and uh, the story with Arita and the Minamasa Distillery, was um, you know this idea of having something that was high ABV, but then also super smooth and just very, very drinkable. It was, it was a little bit of this like juxtaposition between elegance and energy and so that was like kind of the metaphor we were going for and uh one of those you know kind of quintessential japanese symbols for elegance and also energy uh is a tsuru or the crane um the national bird of japan and and that image or that like that idea of the dancing crane uh was something that we felt really represented those first samples that we were tasting and working on together with, with Munamasa, what was being, what was coming off the still and what was being developed. Um, it just had that energy, but also that elegance. And and that was why we, uh, came away with Mizunomai dance, the beautiful crane, um, as the, uh, the metaphor for the brand and the liquid that was in the bottle. The, uh, original packaging evolved pretty quickly to what you have today. Oh. Um, you, you, you were originally printing directly on the glass, which couldn't have been easy, but I think what's, for me, your choice of glass is is was such an important consideration. And to your credit, even today, when I go into various restaurants and bars around the US, I'll see those bottles being repurposed as water bottles. And that's just such great branding for you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, we went through we went through quite a lot to get to those bottles. And again, coming back to the brand creation story. So Arita being the home of Japanese porcelain, um, I was really, really, really uh, intrigued by the old Japanese porcelain shochu bottles. Short neck, kind of broader shoulders, more cylindrical, um, but but specifically that that kind of short flared out neck with a cork in there. Um, that traditional style of ceramic, that, that ceramic shochu bottle was really what inspired um, the, the Mizunomai bottle, uh, kind of, obviously we wanted to go in more of a streamlined, um, modernized version of that, if you want to call it, but that's where we took the inspiration from that short neck and doing that and doing that custom bottle was really, really challenging because I mean, I could talk for ever and ever about, uh, what you can and cannot do with a custom glass bottle and short necks 
and wide mouths are incredibly, incredibly difficult. So we had to spend a lot of time, you know, kind of working on that. But eventually we found, we found a producer. Um, currently we're actually making the bottles, uh, in Japan. You know, we've, we've kind of cut down a little bit of our uh, carbon footprint, so to say, and just kind of try to keep as much of the production, uh, in Japan. So we're that, that's kind of, um, a nice thing. It's also recycled glass as well, but yeah, essentially that was a, that was a nod to the shochu bottles of old from Arita and Imari and that kind of area of Kyushu where porcelain was really a, a big thing. So the first brand that you released was your barley shochu. Was that something that you developed with the distillery or did you use an existing distillate at a different proof? No, that was completely, uh, I would say about an 18, a little over 18 month process starting from scratch. Um, there was discussions as to what our inspiration, uh, was for this, for this barley shochu. Um, there were a handful of shochus and I'm not going to say what those were, um, <laughs> but, um, there was about four or five different shochus that we had picked out. Um, I'll also probably butcher the names as well, cause it's been a very, very long time since I've even thought about those. But, um, uh, we, we had definitely kind of felt as though there were certain parameters or um, certain bookends, and, and we were looking to go for something around those products. And uh, I would say there were two, two out of those five were uh, products that Minamasa was making. We're saying there's something that's really working here. There's something that's really, really working here. There's something in these three other things. And, and it was kind of like, all right, this is sort of the world that we're working in. And they understood the general direction where we wanted to go. Uh, but our, our master distiller at the time, you know, he obviously wanted to put his own fingerprint on this. So everything from the product story to using hundred percent locally farmed barley, uh, making it an Iki style shochu with the barley and rice together. Um, these were all things that he was bringing new to the table. Um, it is not, it is not the same. Let's put it this way. It is not the same distillate as what you would find in another similar or a similar product that they currently make at the distillery. It was specifically designed uh, for the Mizunomai brand. And I really do like the fact that you used the Iki style because I like what rice koji brings to the to the equation when it comes to shochu. Mm-hmm. When I have a 100% barley distillate, it's just not the same. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And I, I think that that I think was an excellent choice for the profile you ended up with. And you know, as well as I do that I've consumed a lot of Mizu Saga barley in, in my day <laughs> back at Sakamai and elsewhere. So, uh, that, but that was your first brand. Then where did you go from there? In that, uh, group of, of brands, there were, I do believe that we did have one rice shochu. We were not limiting this just to a barley shochu. There was definitely the idea it, it could work as rice. Cause remember that first sample that I got from Unamasa that kind of inspired me to like, okay, let's go back there. Let's, 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 you know, get a little more familiar with them and see what else they have. Um, they, they were doing some pretty awesome rice shochus and we were really, really impressed with them as well. They actually created both an original barley and an original rice shochu, but eventually we landed on the traditional Iki style, uh, barley shochu as just every, everybody, everybody, you know, was agreeing on that as their favorite. Yeah. And it definitely hits that sweet spot. I think you're, you're in a really, really good place with that product obviously great on its own and works well in cocktails and we'll talk about cocktails maybe toward the end, but yeah. from your first brand, obviously they're all still branded as Mizu, but you've come out with different expressions and expressions. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what are those other expressions that you've got? So, so the lemongrass came out, uh, during, uh, in 2000. So we launched in 2013. I was living in Japan from 2010 to 2013. Um, we launched the brand in New York city in mid to late 2013. And I was going back to Japan quite a lot in those days, uh, a couple times a year at least. And, uh, so we were kind of, you know, meeting with the distillery pretty regularly. And, um, on one of our trips, they just presented a, a, a small bottle and they're like, we want you to try this. We think that this is the future for, for Mizunamai. Um, and it was the lemongrass shochu. And I was just like, Oh my God, this, it was just, we were all, the excitement in the room was, was pretty, pretty wild. Uh, in the sense that nobody had ever made a lemongrass shochu before. This was again, the, the master distiller very much living off of the motto of the distillery, uh, which is, uh, roughly translated to unprecedented creativity and innovation. So they're all about kind of pushing the envelope with shochu and, and while following tradition, doing things that people haven't quite done. Um, and they were not bothered by the fact that lemongrass was not one of those 54 approved Honkaku shochu ingredients. Um, they were pretty passionate about it because the master distiller was very, very close friends with, uh, a handful of local farmers that were retired rice and barley farmers. They had moved up into the mountains, uh, near the distillery to, uh, start an organic lemongrass farm. And nobody was farming commercial, commercially farming lemongrass in Japan at the time. Uh, this goes, I want to say back in the early two thousands, they started this farm. Um, and, um, and just the idea of partnering with them, taking a locally farmed ingredients with a really cool harvest story um, and, and doing a shochu uh, with that lemongrass was something that they were really excited about. And they were hoping that we would share that enthusiasm and, it, and, and we just did. And it was completely 100% their idea and, and we just went with it. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating expression. As you said, it's not an approved ingredient, but because you follow all the other rules for Honkaku shochu, it's otsuri shochu. So it's, it's basically old style, right? Yeah. yeah, it's old style, but it's, it's, uh, and it's, it's a beautiful expression. It's really, really nice. And then from there, you went back to an approved style. The green tea, uh, uh, Tycho and I, Tycho, my, my business partner, for those of you that don't know, um, Jeremy Kono is one of the original co-founders. Uh, Tycho Ichioka, uh, has been a partner since the very, very early days. Uh, and her and I are, are essentially the, you know, full time on the brand and, uh, Tycho and I, were really excited about the idea of a great green tea shochu, uh, a really impactful, really delicious green tea shochu. That was one that we had actually gone back to them. And we always were constantly in a process of, of pitching back and forth. They'll pitch an idea for a shochu, we'll pitch an idea. And it kind of goes back and forth. It's very much the creative process is, is a mutual process between us. Uh, the green tea, though, they came back with some samples that originally with... 5% of the mash bill being green tea. And we were just like, that's still not getting it. That's still not getting it there. And, uh, they doubled it up to 10%, which I don't think had ever been done before. I think typically green tea shochus are hanging around somewhere around 5% of the mash bill or lower because green tea is just super expensive, especially if you're using quality green tea. So to get it up there uh, and to figure that out and also to use that volume of, of freshly picked, freshly steamed tea leaves without it being tannic and all that was a really, really fun project for them because that was that was a huge challenge. Like nobody had ever done a green tea shochu of that level of umami and intensity. The one that I feel like 
if if I wanted to put one of our shochus in front of somebody and just be like, taste this, it's just weird, it's different, it's going to kind of blow your mind, you're not going to expect this at all, that might be the one. Again, the harvest story there with all the tea leaves being sourced from Odashino, which is about 25 minutes south of the distillery, and it's one of the oldest villages in Japan for green tea cultivation. And again, everything, everything that we try to do, Minamasa, in addition to the creativity, aspect of the distillery. Um, the other thing that they hold in very high regard is the fact that they only use locally farmed ingredients, hundred percent of their ingredients, whether it's their, um, their barley shochus, their emo, their mugi shochu or emo shochu or komen shochu, everything they're doing is hundred percent locally farmed. And whether it's the green tea or the lemongrass or anything that we might look to do in the future, we, we are keeping it within Saga and locally farmed. Yeah, I think that's a, a very important part of the story. And that's one of the beauties of shochu generally is, is the use of local agricultural products. Uh, but Munimasa seems to just really embrace that more deeply, where a lot of barley might be imported or from other parts of Japan. Uh, Munimasa doing everything locally is, is, is very cool. Now, I, I'm, gonna, I'm here with a bottle of your green tea. And I, I, I've spent time with all of your shochu, but I, I think I've settled on the green tea as my favorite. Your favorite. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, it, you're right. It, it's got the umami. It's got all that beautiful green tea uh, flavor and aroma. I, I've i tried other green teas. They don't stand up to this. There's, this, to me, is the best green tea shochu available. Thank uh, you. Thank and you. Beautiful, beautiful spirit. I, I revisit it occasionally. Uh, I, the trouble is it's hard to get here in Japan, so I don't, I don't <laughs> go through it too quickly. But um, whenever I go back to it, I'm like, this is just perfect. There's just, there's nothing that I could say that would improve, uh, this expression. So really, really, uh, enjoy this one. I hope that they're as proud as we are, you know, like it's, everything is very kind of, um, you know, like it's, it's hard to see sometimes the emotion and stuff like that. But, uh, I, I do, I do believe that they're as excited about it as we are, um, and as passionate about it as we are, them being obviously our master distiller in the distillery. Uh, they put up so much work into that. Um, you mentioned something a second ago, by the way, that I, I wanted to come back to, which is um, these these harvest stories. And uh, we started the conversation with like, what what kind of got you interested in the idea of starting a shochu brand? And we met in New York and you had visited a lot of those uh, midtown izakayas that very off the beaten path, kind of tucked away, kind of like Riki and some of those other places around there near Grand Central Station, um, essentially that catered to Japanese salarymen, you know, or expats living living in New York City. Mm -hmm. And uh, about a year before I had the opportunity to go move to Taiwan, as often as I could possibly get out of the office for lunch, there was a Japanese uh, izakaya um, that all they would show, they had a big screen TV and all they would show is like Japanese cooking shows, but you know, not talking about like iron chef and stuff like that, but like more the, um, style of, of cooking shows where it dives deep into the culture of the, like the origins and the sourcing of the ingredients and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think I realized I'd always had an appreciation for Japanese cuisine and Japanese culture. I visited Japan for the first time, uh, when I was I think, uh, 13 years old and kind of opened my eyes to just an amazing place, amazing country. And, um, I, I would spend as many lunches as I possibly could in that, in that little izakaya and watching these shows. And again, whether it was the, the mushrooms or the daikon, just visiting the farms, talking to the farmers, that whole aspect, it wasn't about 
like in a 30 minute program, about five minutes is spent on the actual cooking. Whereas in the 25 minutes leading up to that is all about the farms, the farmers and where the ingredients comes from and what makes it special. So that whole idea of harvest story and shochu and how that relates to Japanese cuisine and how they perceive how things are made. It's, it's not so much, there's such a important component in craftsmanship when we're talking about things, you know, Japanese crafts. Um, but so much of Japanese craftsmanship is not just about the craftsmen, but it's about the materials and the person producing those materials. And I think that that is what gives shochu such an incredible story and kind of a romance to it in the same, in the same line as like wine and cigars and, you know, where we're, you're talking about the origins of the ingredients, things of that nature. That was as, as somebody who was uh, a marketer, um, I was, I was personally really interested in that. And like, that was something that got me fired up. It's, we, we weren't just making Japanese vodka. We were making something that had history and tradition and romance and kind of a grittiness to it with, you know, kind of that farming and agricultural farm to bottle vibe. And that was what really won my heart over. It makes makes perfect sense to me. And I had an appreciation for exactly what you're describing as far as the importance of the the ingredients, uh, both in cooking and in, in shochu production. But it wasn't until I moved to Japan that I realized the relationship for many, many Japanese people between them and their farmer is much closer than than we experience generally in the States. Of course, you can go to the Union Square Green Market and you can meet meet the people who are growing the vegetables that they're selling there. But when I go to the grocery store here in Fukuoka, there's a picture of the farmer on the package when I'm buying my cucumbers or my carrots or my tomatoes. And that's just a different level. Even my eggs, there's pictures of farmers on egg cartons, not because they're missing <laughs> or anything. It's just, <laughs> you know, so, and, 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 and unless you live in Portland, Oregon, uh, you, you, you won't, you won't get any of this stuff. I think culturally speaking, there's definitely a trend towards that here in the U S. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're, we're, it's nowhere close to the level of, of appreciation and connection with nature, connection with the farmer, um, that, uh, that they have in Japan for sure. So I, I want to go back to something that we talked about a little bit earlier in the episode. You had, you had been working in, in marketing for, for vodka brands. And obviously what you're making is, is a much more beautiful and interesting spirit than any vodka could ever hope to be. But how did you see cons or imagine consumers drinking, uh, Mizunoma? And then what, what's happened? Where, where has that evolved to? Yeah. When, when we first started this thing, um, we saw it as, you know, it, it could be for the vodka drinker. It could be for the whiskey drinker. It could be for the gin drinker. I think what we maybe naively assumed is that because it tasted so much better than, uh, I'm not just speaking about Mizunomai, I just mean shochu as a category. There was so much more, I mean, the drinkability, the versatility, the smoothness, all the different, um, kind of things that we were looking at that got us excited. We felt like if we could just get liquid to lips, people are going to fall in love with this category. We thought it would be a lot easier to be honest. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, but we, we saw, we saw there being, um, applications, uh, similar to how somebody would enjoy vodka, meaning like it could be enjoyed, you know, with club soda or tonic or something like that, or, you know, whether it's gin or vodka, kind of in those highball, um, applications for sure. We, we really, really felt strongly about that, 
But I would say more than anything, we really saw it being something that people would drink neat or on the rocks, but primarily on the rocks, you know, as an alternative to going to a bar or even a nightclub. Again, at the time, we were a lot younger and we were spending a lot of time in nightclubs (laughs) and bottle service and things like that. We were drinking some not so delicious stuff and paying a lot of money for it. And, you know, we kind of, as we went further and further down this journey of of shochu, we were like, wow, like, can you imagine if this was something that, um, you know, people can just order it, order, you know, whether it's bottle service or just order a glass of it or whatever. Um, So the idea of it being a mixer, um, you know, was not exactly a big, big, big thing at the very beginning. I think we even had a pie chart in one of our original presentations when we were explaining to the, to distilleries that we were just meeting for the first time that some of the applications for this in the United States and in, in Europe and around the world outside of Japan, that some of it will be craft cocktails. And they just looked at us like, like does not compute. Like, we don't like, how could you say that? Like, what are you talking about? You don't mix shochu and craft cocktails. Like what a ridiculous idea. We're only just starting to, to understand that there was a cocktail move, like a huge industry changing uh, cocktail movement going on. And, and just the industry, the craft spirits industry was catering towards these, towards these types of bars. And that was later on in the process, very much towards the end of the product development stage and brand development stage and stuff like that, that we realized that that was a thing, but yeah, it was really about let's drink it neat. Let's drink it on the rocks. Let's drink it with some club soda. I mean, essentially the traditional ways of how it's enjoyed in Japan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your green tea, uh, uh, Christopher and I use the term almighty for a, a shochu that plays with every different dilution style. Mm. And there's no question that your, your green tea does that. It can be enjoyed with hot water, with cold water, with soda on the rocks. It's just so versatile. I love that. Almighty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, so but then uh, naturally your shochu did end up in cocktails as in those craft cocktail bars. And I mean, the, the flirty bird's been on the menu at Angel Share for a very long time, which is such a feather in your cap. I think the flirty bird, we're, we're probably about a month or two away from, from celebrating a, a 10 year anniversary on that. Um, so that's going to be fun. But yeah, the flirty bird is, I think, one of those quintessential, if, if there is to be something, if there, I hope one day it will be appreciated uh, as a, as a modern classic cocktail, it is, you know, before yuzu was blown out as a big thing, it was yuzu, it was shiso, agave syrup, and, and our saga barley shochu. Uh, it was created by Shingo Gokan, who everybody knows who Shingo is. And, of course. uh, now has his own SG shochu, which is incredible, um, as well. And, um, you know, so th- there's a lot of history behind that cocktail, but not just, not just Angel Shared. There were a handful of cocktail bars, um, Experimental Cocktail Club, and that was run at the time by uh, Nico DeSoto, who I think is also one of the pioneers uh, in the world of shochu. I don't think he gets enough credit. People know who he is and he's an industry icon. But uh, when it comes to shochu, he really put Mizu on the map. I mean, that was a regular fixture uh, with with all of his bars. That was a big thing. So this this evolution, it it just we started to realize that because it was higher proof, and it was actually Nico that that I was speaking to very early on. He said, you know, like I've been wanting to make a cocktail with shochu for quite some time now, um, but it just never the specs never work out because it's just too low ABV mm-hmm. and it's it's a lot harder. 
Um, and I really love your show too. And it's higher EV and boom, that was, that was kind of where it all started with our friendship uh, and long relationship with Nico. But, um, it, it's definitely, it grew into a thing where we started to realize, uh, okay, this is, people will drink this neat. People will drink it on the rocks. People drink it in highballs. But we started seeing that the volume was going to come from these customers, from the, the elite cream of the crop bartenders, um, you know, that were crafting really interesting, unique forward thinking cocktails and using new ingredients like mezcal and cachaca and shochu. Uh, to a smaller extent, because we were just getting started and we were really the only people out there that were that were talking about shochu to this audience. So um, that blew up into something really big. And now, I mean, you know, when we look at what JSS is doing, um, what, what you know, what Ichigo has done with Saiten and stuff like that. And this 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 migration kind of I, I almost want to say the pendulum has swung back to high proof shochu, not just because of the reasons that you mentioned earlier in terms of how, why, why you like it. Mm-hmm. And you're more of a, a shochu aficionado than a, a cocktail. I think you'll, you'll agree sure. with that than a cocktail aficionado. Absolutely. Um, so you're more of a traditionalist, but you know, from a, from a bar standpoint, yeah. I mean, the, the applications of higher proof shochu um, are pretty obvious. I'm not going to say that there are not places for low ABV shochus because there are a lot of bartenders that love the idea of low proof cocktails and, a low ABV shochu is going to going to rock it for you know something like that, but you know there are those there are those out there for sure. Sure, sure, no question. And and obviously your uh, your highball program has always been on point, and it's just it's something that I associate with Mizu Shochu is is your your highball pop ups. You'll you'll be you'll do events and you'll have three, four, five different very interesting highballs on a on a bar menu. And it's, it's, uh, it's such a great way to drink the things that you've brought over. So, uh, another thing for people to look out for. Yeah. There's two things there. It's like, you can have a traditional shochu highball, which is what I think I, when I was living in Japan, that was my go-to. I really enjoyed, you know, like something light, refreshing and fizzy, just going for a shochu highball is a perfect, uh, perfect drink for that moment. Um, but then also you have chew highs and that's a big thing that we've been kind of getting behind because it is, it is like the unofficial national cocktail of Japan. And so there is, there is like a, a nice history there. There's a nice story there behind, you know, the tradition of using, you know, fresh ingredients, club soda, um, you know, whether that's citrus or whether you're using tea, um, they're just very drinkable. And we think that there's a fun, a fun kind of playful way uh, for people to kind of enter the world of shochu through either those kind of clean, simple club soda highballs uh, done properly, of course. And then also the, the chew highs, which are again, chew high is short for show chew high ball. You take the middle two syllables. Um, and, and what it's really, what we're really looking at again with our clientele and the people that we talk to, it's, it's more of an elevated version of a chew high. Sure. So again, you're talking about phenomenal bartenders with their own creativity and ideas, kind of taking those classic chew high builds of like a yuzu sour, a grapefruit sour and elevating them not just because they're using better shochu than what you typically find at like it izakaya in Japan, but also because you're, uh, you know, you're, you're using other interesting ingredients that might not have been, you know, ever presented in a chuhai before. Sure. Yeah. And we, uh, in our prior episode was with the Abai Chuhai, the canned chuhai out of California. Mm-hmm. And that's using multiply distilled Koroi shochu, where obviously what we're talking about here is, is single pot distilled, uh, 
Mizu Shochu. And, and obviously those are going to be very, very different expressions in, in how those drink. Uh, but yeah, you've got the can, which is your, your classic convenience store, Chuhai in Japan. And then you've got, you, you're doing these incredible elevated craft Chuhais uh, with, with bars around the country, which is, I think, just very cool. And I, I love to see it. Uh, the more the more we get this out there and let people know about these these spirits, the better. Um, so what's what's next for for Mizu? Where where are you headed? Well, we were constantly in a in this creative dialogue with with Minamasa, our distillery, and this discussion over what is next. We we definitely want to expand, you know, introduce new expressions, whether that's gonna be something like a limited edition or whether it's a permanent member of the family. But looking at locally farmed ingredients and what are the what are the interesting harvest stories from Saga Prefecture, that's sort of you know where we're at right now. Looking at what's what's next to come for um, for Mizunomai. Very nice. I'm looking forward to your to your next expressions. Everything you bring out is so much fun. You're nationally distributed now, pretty much. We're we're in about thirty, a, a little over thirty states right now. That's pretty close to national. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you on social or to learn more about your brands? Sure. Social, we're at Mizu Shochu, M-I-Z-U-S-H-O-C-H-U. Our website is MizuShochu.com. Depending on where you are in the country, we can get you Shochu in most states. I think about like a little over 40 states we can actually ship to via our website. So you could definitely find us there if you're curious to try it. Again, we have uh, the traditional saga barley, the lemongrass, and the green tea. And then we also have a barrel-aged expression, which is Sakura cast. That is the first ever Japanese spirit to be solely aged uh, 100% in Sakura cast, Sakura being Japanese cherry blossom. So this is the, the wood of the cherry tree that they're using to, uh, to mature the shochu in. Very nice. Yeah, all of them are delicious. I recommend people pick up a four-pack. <laughs> If, if, if you ship to their state, for sure. Uh, Jesse, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on the Japan Distilled Podcast. Uh, and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future to talk more. I'd love that. I'd love that. And thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Can't wait for the next time. We should do this more often. Absolutely. I think you and I, actually, you and I need to go spend some time in Karatsu together. Yeah, so we should definitely definitely meet up uh, for sure uh, at some point in Karatsu. We could do the fireworks show. We could have a little picnic on oh, the beach. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Let's do it. Bottle, bottle of shochu, bottle of shochu, and a uh, picnic blanket. That's that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, again, thanks so much for being on the show, and thanks to all of our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. Uh, if you haven't, please uh, rate and review the Japan Distilled Podcast wherever you listen. It really helps others find the show. And of course, you can find us at Japan Distilled uh, wherever we're on social media. And if you're interested in this or other episodes, please go read the show notes. We provide lots of additional information about the things that we talk about. Thank you all so much for listening. Kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up.